Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless our time in your word. Open up our hearts to see the beauty of our Savior who did come as a man to live faithfully for us. He was willing to not just live faithfully, but to suffer for us. He was tempted and he withstood. He was a true man of faith, a true man led by the Holy Spirit. May we see that today and worship him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Angel, when he was up here a little while ago, he did mention um, what we studied last week. So just a brief refresher of where we left off. Because we finished chapter 4 talking about how Jesus is our great high priest. He's our great high priest. And so like those Old Testament priests passed through the curtain into the Holy of Holies to offer up the blood of an animal sacrifice for temporary forgiveness of the sins of the people, What did Jesus do? He passed through the heavens, that heavenly curtain, into the true holy of holies to offer up his own blood, not for temporary forgiveness, but for our eternal forgiveness. What did the common people have to do when they approached the temple under that old covenant? Were they allowed to walk inside? They didn't get to go inside. Only the priests could step into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, once a year. But our great high priest, what has he done? He has made it possible for us to come inside. We're not out there on the edges. We're not out there outside the walls. He invites us, come inside the heavenly temple. It's a beautiful thing. He's torn down the walls. He's torn down all the barriers. He's torn down the curtain. They're not there impeding our progress into the most holy place. And why is that? It's because he has made us holy and acceptable and able to approach that throne of grace and mercy in a time of need. That's what he's done. 
It's quite wonderful. Up until this point, the author of this book, he's been slowly introducing the theme of the high priest. And his aim is to show us that the high priest that we have in Jesus is superior to what the Jews had under the old covenant. And this passage that I just read to you a moment ago, it develops this theme further, and it's going to be picked back up again in chapter 7. And I want you to remember that the audience, that this sermon is really what it is, it's a sermon letter, the audience that it was written to, these people are Christians who have converted from Judaism, but times have gotten tough for them. There's a great struggle in their life and a great struggle ahead. The authorities, they are cracking down on them. Persecution is there at the doorstep. And the temptation for these people is to just go back to their former religion. You know, maybe we will not be persecuted if we just go back there. Life was a lot easier back there. God was back there, right? Under that old covenant. But they're being taught here that there really is nothing for them to go back to there. Jesus came to fulfill and complete all that their law taught about priests and temples and sacrifices and feasts, all of those things. Jesus came to fulfill all of that. Those things were shadows. But Jesus here is the substance. And you don't go back to shadows, do you? Once you've had the real thing, you don't go back to what you had before, the talk of it. It's like once you have a, a menu and you see the picture of the food on the menu and you've ordered it and you've tasted it, you don't want the menu anymore. You don't want pictures. You want the real thing. And that's what they have had. They have seen who Jesus is. They've heard. They've understood the truth. They've had the substance. And so you go forward with the substance, not back to the pictures. And that's an encouragement for all of us all these years later. That's an encouragement to us. We don't go back to what we had before. We go forward with Jesus Christ. There was a time in Jesus' ministry where many disciples turned back. There in John chapter 6, maybe you know the story. Jesus started saying some hard truths to them. Some of those disciples, we know there were a lot more than just the 12, right? Some of those disciples, it says they turned back and they no longer walked with him after that. And Jesus turns and he looks at his 12 and says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, where will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? No, we will not turn back. The true disciple can't go anywhere else and doesn't want to go anywhere else because they have found the source of life. I'm going to deal with some details in the Bible today that tell us how Jesus was prepared in his time on earth to become the high priest that he is. And we don't often think, I think, of, of Jesus being, uh, as the Son of God, coming for this particular role. But his time on earth prepared him for what he is currently doing right now. 
And our passage answers two basic questions about the priesthood. And those questions are, first, what does a high priest do? And secondly, who can qualify for this particular job? So let's start with the first question. What does a high priest do? Verse 1, right there in front of us, it gives the job description. If you've got your Bible open, and I would encourage you to do so today, I hope that you keep one open because we're going to refer to it a few times. Look at verse 1. It gives us that description. It says that the high priest is chosen from among men. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what his job is. He is chosen from among men to act on behalf of men in things concerning God. And the fact that there is a need for a high priest should tell us something about our neediness. It should tell us that there is something lacking in mankind, something missing, something defective in me, that I would need a high priest to stand between me and God. Something's missing. Something that keeps men from approaching God directly. There has to be a representative for us chosen from among our people to go before God and make offerings for our sins. A couple of other things are clear here too. Mankind is accountable to God. And man was made to live in relationship with God. And if that were not true, God and man could just coexist in this world as ships passing in the night, God doing his thing out there, us doing our thing out there, but this high priest's office is clearly intended to show us that man needs God, was created for relationship with him, and that we are accountable to him. We answer to him. We must stand before him. We can't just be out there doing our own things separated from him, as many people try to do, right? No, we were made for him. And because we are sinners, we need somebody to stand in between God and us. One other thing is implicit here. The truth that God would establish the office of high priest, it shows that he loves mankind and that he wants us to be with him. There is grace being given by God here just in the fact that there was something called a high priest and that he would choose a man to stand in between himself and the rest of his people. There's grace in that. There is God's desire for us to know him and enjoy him. But the plain job description as is given here is there in verse 1 that the high priest is to be a man chosen by God to represent men and things pertaining to God. And he would offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Well, what qualifications must be met in order to become the high priest? What, what, what requirements does he need to meet? And there are two that are given here. I just want you to keep in mind that the way that the author writes and speaks, he is dealing with priests generally in the Old Testament. He has not yet gotten to Jesus. He'll turn that corner here in just a minute. But in these first few verses, he's talking just generally about the priests there in the Old Testament. 
So two requirements. First, he must be compassionate toward fellow sufferers. In verses 2 and 3, they give us those details. It says that the high priest is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. So because he is weak and understands what it's like to be weak, he can relate to those who also are weak. He can deal gently with them. He can show compassion to them. He can be kind toward them because he knows what it's like. He will not be heavy-handed. We're told here that he's able to deal gently with those who wander away in ignorance. In the Old Testament, there were two broad categories of sin. Ignorance and defiance. And only sins of ignorance could be atoned for and forgiven. And it doesn't mean, though, that the person who was ignorant of their sin doesn't know it was a sin. Maybe you think of David and his sin with Bathsheba. He knew that adultery was evil. But when he was confronted with his sin, what was his response? He responded in repentance and grief. But the defiant sin... That kind of sin came from a heart that despised the word of God, hated rebuke, was not going to repent. The Old Testament actually calls it the the sin of high-handedness, having a high hand toward God. And we learn there that that person was to be cut off from the people. And so the author here, he is addressing the high priest's qualification to deal with men who had sinned in ignorance because the high priest had had himself done the same thing. That's what verse 3 tells us, that he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. He's a sinner too. He knows what it's like. So he offers a sacrifice for his own sin, then he offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so the high priest is able to be compassionate because he understands weakness. And I think that we can kind of get that in our own lives too. When you have experienced a hardship, a difficulty, a tragedy that somebody else right now is experiencing, you are able to be compassionate in a way with them that you otherwise would not be able to do, right? Because you can relate to that person. That's what is being described here with this high priest. He has experienced what the people are experiencing, so he can deal gently with them. That's the first qualification. The second one that we see here is that he must be appointed by God. Look at verse 4. Nobody takes this honor for himself. He doesn't claim it as his own. He can only have this honor when he himself is called by God, just as Aaron was, that first priest there in the Old Testament under the law. He was appointed by God. And so this priesthood must be given, not taken. God gives it. Man doesn't claim it. No man could presume to be up to the task of approaching God on behalf of other men. And so the example given to us is that first Jewish priest. Aaron did not step forward and say, I am worthy of this, only me. I am, in fact, the brother of Moses. Who else is going to do this job? Aaron didn't do that. 
God chose to give the office of priest to him and to his family. Salvation is a gift. We understand that, right? And so the pieces of salvation will tell us something about that. The priesthood here is given by God. Those are the qualifications. That's the job description. Now we move to Jesus. Verse 5 turns things to him to show us how he in particular meets these qualifications. First, we see that he too was chosen by God for this role. And where is it that we find out that God chose Jesus, appointed him to this particular role? It's the Old Testament scriptures. Two texts are given to us here. And if you're looking at your Bible... What words do both of those Old Testament scriptures begin with? What two words? Do you see it? You are. So God is speaking directly to someone here. You are. Who? Well, the first passage tells us who. Who is it? Who does he speak to in that first passage in front of you? The Son. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. So it tells us who he is addressing in these passages. Now what else is the father saying to the son? In the second one, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the author is joining these verses together to say something like this. You are my son. You are a priest forever. God addressing Jesus, the son of God in the Old Testament, appointing him to this particular role. Jesus did not claim it for himself. God the Father chose him for it. And we see it there in those scripture passages. He was given the role like Aaron was. But unlike Aaron, Jesus is the Son of God, so his priesthood must be superior to anything that came before him. And Jesus didn't become a priest through the line of Aaron. Do you know what tribe Aaron was from? Anybody? Levi. He was from the tribe of Levi. And so in the Old Testament... Only the Levites could serve as priests. But that creates a kind of dilemma, does it not, for Jesus? In a way, at least in their minds it would. Well, how can Jesus be a priest because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi? What tribe was Jesus from? He was from the tribe of Judah. Did a priest ever come from Judah? No, because God did not choose a priest to come from Judah. So how is it possible here that Jesus can become a priest for his people? Well, we see that there in verse 6. He says, you are a priest forever, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. We'll come back to that in chapter 7. The main thing here is that Jesus fulfills the first qualification of high priest. He was chosen by God for this particular office. But secondly, we see that Jesus fulfills the office of high priest is that he is able to be compassionate toward those fellow sufferers. He meets that qualification as well. And notice I didn't say sinners because that's what was being dealt with there in verses 2 and 3. 
that Old Testament priest, he's able to sympathize with fellow sinners because he was a sinner, but Jesus wasn't a sinner. He was able to more than able, I should say, relate to the sufferings of men. Why? Because he himself had suffered as a man. And maybe you have a hard time this morning thinking about Jesus being able to relate to you. Does that happen from time to time when you think that, you know, he was God after all, right? It's like if he's God, then really maybe it wasn't that hard for Jesus to be a man. Ever have those thoughts come into your mind? Naturally, everything just kind of came easy for Jesus. Everything was automatic. He can't really relate to me and the hardships that I have to endure here in life. But that's one of the main points of his becoming a man and experiencing everything that he did so that he can relate to you and deal gently with you in a time of need. So I think we often struggle to see Jesus as a real man experiencing all the things that real men experience. And so we celebrate Christmas every year, do we not? And we confess together that God became a man there in the incarnation. But somewhere in the back of our minds, we're thinking that Jesus had a cheat code. And he could choose what parts of being a regular human being that he wanted to participate in. And the things that maybe he didn't really want to do, he could just kind of push the God button and just skip on past that. Have you ever been in the thick of traffic before? Maybe out here somewhere in the city, it's backed up, you're getting frustrated. I don't know if you are like me, I do get frustrated in traffic, and I do talk to the people in front of me, you know, like, you know, like what, 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 and I say like, what are you doing? You know, like real nice like that. What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing up there, you know? Are you paying attention? Um, and so I get frustrated in traffic, and every now and then I'm backed up in traffic, and all of a sudden, back there behind me, the police officer will turn his lights on and turn his siren on. Something's urgent ahead. So all of us kind of wiggle our way to the side, do we not, and let him on through to do whatever business that he's got to do that's so urgent. And what do you see when he gets on the other side? He turns his lights off and turns off his siren. The urgency was lost as soon as the traffic jam is over. I think we kind of had that thing in mind from time to time about Jesus. That, you know, just the things that he doesn't really want to deal with, he can push the God code and move along and then deal with the things that he wants to. And so we struggle at times to think of him as really being able to relate to us. Ah, he can't really relate to things being hard, can he? But if we read closely enough about his life, we'll see things like Jesus sure prayed a lot. Man, he prayed a lot. And when you read passages like that, do you think that he was just doing that for show? So that it could be written down, so that when we go back and we read it, oh, Jesus prayed a lot, and so that means I should pray a lot. Do you think that he was just doing that for show? Why is it that the God-man prayed so much 
while he was here on earth. I mean, you read things like he was up on the mountain praying all night long. Does he just want to set a good example for us? Or could it be that Jesus, the Son of God, was so committed to living here on earth as a human being, like other human beings, that much of that praying was truly for himself? And that there was a genuine learning process that was taking place inside of him while he was here on earth, like other men learn. Do you struggle with that idea? That Jesus would have learned and grew in faith while he was here? But I have to challenge you because Scripture talks like that. It actually says things like that. But we think to ourselves, if he's God and he made this world, then surely he couldn't learn while he was here, right? Well, the passage in front of us doesn't talk like that. We see here that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered while he was here. That certainly will challenge the way that we think about his humanity and the way that Jesus came to live here. And we're going to come back to those words next week, but for now, I just want to challenge you in the way that you think about Jesus' humanity. One of the most popular Christmas songs is Away in a Manger. Y'all know that song? And I'll admit to you that one of the reasons that we don't sing that song as much as some of the other ones this time of year is because of one line that's in that song. This is what it says. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Do you see what that song is saying? It's implying something about Jesus as when he was a baby that he didn't need to cry. Oh, that crying stuff's beneath baby Jesus. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need anybody to take care of him. He's God. And that's the kind of thinking that I'm talking about here. As if Jesus was just down here playing as a human being and as a baby he didn't really need his mom for anything so he just didn't cry like I'll take care of myself but that's just not true he came down from heaven to experience life in all of its fullness as a baby as a child then as a man that even in Luke he says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man there was a growing process that took place in him as he learned while he was here. He learned to live in constant dependence on his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit in a world that is filled with pain and hunger and sleeplessness and evil and disappointment and death. He voluntarily came to live here as a man so that he could become the high priest that you and I so desperately needed. 
He did not need to come down here and become a man. He wasn't missing anything when he was up there in heaven. He was not looking for self-fulfillment and he'll go to earth to find it. No, everything that he came for here on earth was in service to us. Making himself ready to give his life in obedience to the Father's will. Making himself ready to serve in the office that we're reading about here. He was driven by sacrificial love when he came. And he is still driven by love for you today in what he does. The man who came to lay down his life for a sinner like yourself 2,000 years ago is able to deal gently with his fellow men today because of what he experienced while he was here as a man. He knows you, and he truly does understand your weaknesses. And those words that we read are meant to evoke confidence for our priest, but not just a confidence. I think they're meant to evoke a reverent awe of him a sense of wonder about him, where we will occasionally ask the question, kind of like those disciples did back in the book of Mark when Jesus was in the boat sleeping, and they're terrified, and they say, don't you care? And he stands up and calms the winds and the waves, and they ask the question, who is this man? If we don't ever ask that question, I don't know if we're living with the kind of wonder and awe for Jesus and all that he is. We don't have him all figured out. The Bible will challenge the way that we think about him. And I think this scripture passage in front of us is one of those. It challenges us. Who, who is this man? This is an entirely appropriate, I think, kind of message for Christmas to challenge us with the humanity of the Son of God. And my request as you prepare to come back next week is that you prayerfully read through verses 7 through 10, asking questions about what you're reading. And if no questions are coming to mind as you read those verses, you are not looking closely enough or maybe you just don't want to think hard enough about them. And when we come back together next Sunday, hopefully we'll walk through some of those things that you're seeing and, and wondering about. But as we close today, can we just rejoice together that we have a high priest like Jesus? And sometimes we struggle, yes, to understand all of what that means, but we simply can rejoice in the fact that he is everything that we need. And he joyfully stands between us and God because he is God. And all of those barriers have been torn down to approach his presence. And he simply says to us, come in. And if we believe that, we will do just that. By faith, trusting that he is who he says he is and will bring our needs. I'm going to imagine that right now everybody in this room has needs. You're a sinner. You sin daily, right? But you belong to the Most High King and have been declared righteous. And he says, come and he will cleanse you of sin today. 
And whatever struggle and whatever suffering that you have right now, whatever you're maybe not willing to admit to somebody else that's in this room, you can bring it to him. He says, come. And may we be a people who do that faithfully, understanding that he cleanses us, that he loves us, and he is there every day for us. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, we come before you today grateful for what we see in your word. That you were willing, joyfully willing, to come and endure the cross and all the suffering that you experienced here in this lifetime that you lived on earth for us. You are a servant, a sacrificial servant, and you still are serving us right now. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that each person in this room today is looking to you. We are needy, and we still do sin, and we still have many struggles here on earth. And you invite us to enter into the holy of holies with our prayers. And I pray that right now that our, our minds and our hearts are grabbing hold of you by faith and are calling upon you to give us exactly what we need in this moment. The first thing is faith. Faith to see you, faith to trust in you, faith to bring all of our needs before you. May we be a people like that. And may we experience tremendous answers to prayer because we are bringing them to the one who is able to answer and give to his people wonderful things. So Lord, please cleanse us of our sin by your righteous blood, please give us faith to look to you. And I pray that the people of Cas Church this week, that we will live in obedience to our Savior Jesus because we love you and know that you were there in heaven for us. Make us more holy. Make us love holiness. Make us a people, Lord Jesus, who live as a light in this world. This world needs light. It is so dark. The city is dark. Use us as light here to shine before men. And I pray, God, that during this Christmas season, that people who are currently in darkness will be drawn to your light and be saved. Please hear that prayer and answer. And may we see wonderful change and revival in our community. And may we also see that in our families and in our workplaces those that we care about. Lord Jesus, we know that you hear our prayers and that you will answer in the best possible way. We ask it in Jesus' name, your name. Amen. If you would.